Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with a woman who you may know by a different name, Janice Stewart, now Janice Dorch, she's a newlywed. Um, She's the founder of Special Needs Siblings and has a son who lives with epilepsy and autism. She's an advocate for both conditions and for siblings and caregivers. So Janice, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited and I'm oh. really grateful to be here, Lauren. Ah, the feeling's mutual. So I, I think most people know at this point, we like to dig straight into the story. I'm not going to pull any punches with you. And I was wondering if you could tell us when and how you first realized that Christian, who's now your second eldest son, right, yes. needed medical attention and what steps you've taken to keep him in better health since then? Well, well, this is taking him back. Christian is 15 years old. So this is 13 years ago when he turned two, about the age of two. Um, It really started with the seizures that he was having. And he started to make these weird gestures with his arms. And I started looking at it. We saw the Hulk, actually, the movie. And so we thought he was mimicking the Hulk moves where he kind of moves his arms up and does this weird just like, er. yeah. And he's like two years old. He had been learning his um, alphabet and pointing to his nose, ears, eyes, stuff like that. And these weird gestures were actually seizures that he was having. Wow. It wasn't until we were at my um, family member's house and he had a convulsive seizure at the age of two. And he like just had a grandma. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what that was. And so we took him to the hospital and they were like, this is a seizure. He's having a seizure. You need to go see a neurologist. I mean, that's when it really started turning. But that Mm. first neurologist told us that 
these are all muscle spasms and he's not having a seizure. Oh, wow. They're, they're not. And so we had to go and try and find some more second opinion, third opinion. So you knew to, to do that. Yet. You knew to push for second and third opinions. My mother is in the medical field. Okay. So I'm so grateful for her. Yeah. And she's an anesthetist. So she's, she's mm. very much so into get a second opinion, get a third yeah. opinion, just to be sure. And if he had one seizure, that doesn't necessarily mean you have epilepsy. So those are mm. two different things. And so that's kind of where it started with him. And then after about two, between two and three, he started to digress. Mm. And so he were trying to put him on medication, but then also he stopped talking to us. Mm. And we thought that first that it had to do with um, my father passing away and he was very close. Um, we were living with him at, with my parents at the time. I was young, like eight, I think I was like 20 years old. And we were, my father died suddenly and we thought that Christian kind of went silent because of the death and the passing of him and he wasn't talking to us. And I, as a new mother, you don't automatically think there's something wrong with your child. So you're told he's going to grow on his own. He's going to speak when he's ready to speak, be patient with him. You don't want to get anything um, put on paper that says he has anything because we don't want him to be labeled as different. That's and an interesting, so, I'm really glad that you bring that up because that's something that's like, I think there are some people who might be of the camp of like, let's get it labeled so we can get it treated. And there is the more cautious camp of like, let's not get it labeled because it might be considered a pre-existing condition. He gets labeled yes. and then we have more money that we have to spend on this in the long term. Every so, long term. And even just in, um, in a family perspective, I come from a very religious background. I'm an African-American family and having disabilities is not something you really discuss. Hmm. And it's not, um, it's not a conversation that we like to have or like to put saying he needs medication for something. We're not hmm. trying to medicate our children. We're not trying to um, do things like that if we can avoid it at all costs. And so I really thought that there was nothing wrong with him. And I still don't think there's anything per se wrong with him. Right. Um, he's just different. And I didn't understand that. And it wasn't until the doctors, you know, started that third year. He's still not talking. He's still not saying anything. He was doing this at one point. He regressed. And all these terms that are like popping up and he's lining items up um, in the room. And he's not playing with his toys. Um, no imagination, not no imaginative play, you know, just little things that I wasn't paying attention to because he's just my baby and he's fine and there's nothing wrong with him. He's just doing what he likes to do. And uh, eventually we got that diagnosis at three years old and that he was actually on the autism spectrum. And it wasn't like a, uh, what was it? Um, it wasn't like Asperger's or anything like that. It was like, it was like a spectrum. And this is, I think I'm like 20, 21 at the time knew I just had another child, his brother, Caleb. And that was just a lot <laughs> that moment. Absolutely. I mean, to be a young mom, have this be your first child, you know, having a, the stress of having a second child, which is like, that's a lot anyway. But as you say, like also culturally with your family, maybe not being as accepting of, you know, neurodiversity perhaps. Um, it's, it's really interesting, like the journey that you've been on, which has been so specific to your experiences, but I think is so universally understood by so many parents who are in this position. 
Um, so what has happened since then? I mean, wh- and what was that like for you too? Like, was that sort of, did it feel like the diagnosis was something that made you turn your life upside down or was it something that you sort of took in your stride and sort of worked around? Cause it sounds like you had that sort of millennial approach to parenting that is let's let them be and see yes, what happens. And I, I was trying to do that as much as possible, letting them him be, hmm. but also trying to realize that there's a lot of resources out here. And mm-hmm. even in my community, yeah. so we lived in Georgia and we still do, but we were in Gwinnett County, which is one of the most, more diverse counties. Mm. And so I've always kind of um, taken the approach of Google everything, Google, Google, Google. So I think I, I was really into trying to figure out what I could do as a, as a parent. Mm. But also there was a lot of uh, blowback when it comes to the religious upbringing that I have experienced. So I'm a pastor's child. I've been in church my entire life and now not so much, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. growing up, this is things that pray it away or pray for him. And let's, but that's interesting because your mom's an anesthetist and your dad's a pastor. So it's like science and faith. Yes. And she's into the, she's into her faith and she somehow was able to balance the both worlds. And, Mm -hmm. She's also takes, she feels like God gives you these, uh, she gives you doctors. She gives you, you know, you have access to information to mm-hmm. be able to do things that they weren't able to do before. Thank so you for you signifying just, like, God as, as yes. well. God is a woman. I think, I think that one's pretty clear. We're out here doing things that I'm like, you know, I think for me and Christian, I just kind of realized that, um, that I needed help, but mm. not, I didn't know for myself. I think for him, I was more focused on him and trying to stop seizures. Mm. And even with his autism, I haven't, I never put a lot of, there wasn't a lot of focus placed on the autism because the seizures were happening so frequently. Right. It's so that was more severe. On that. Yeah. It's hard for him to remember things. And what mm. are you doing when you have seizures 30 times a day? And it's wow. like, how do you sit in therapy and go to school and do these things? And then was there know, ever a, a correlation made as well medically between the seizures and the autism? Like, was there ever a question of? Yeah, they've, we've been tested so many times, different things. We tried like the gene testing mm. and all these stuff nothing. There's nothing that they've been able to link together. I'm glad for Um, that because I mean, it's interesting because these two conditions exist separately with so many different patients. And to think that, you know, in a sense, autism being caused by epilepsy, that idea makes autism seem more of a negative diagnosis when actually it can be such a gift as well. Yeah. And I look at my son like a gift. Like I don't Mm. look at him like we need to I want his seizures to stop. That's, that's my main focus. It's never been, how can I make him become more like me or process things like me? And I think for a while I felt that pressure that I needed to, he needed to be more like his brother or his sister um, as he was getting older. And then realizing that he was doing things his way in his own time. And he may never do what they do. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. My biggest issue is the fact that I can't get seizures under control so he can just be, he's not tired all the time or he's not dropping in the middle of the grocery store or he can just communicate however he feels. 
I don't know how he's feeling half the time. So guessing that for the last 13 years has been probably the biggest challenge that I've been having is trying to just feel him out and to understand, you know, where he's at. So So is he largely nonverbal now still? Yeah, he's pretty much nonverbal. There's points, like maybe for a few months, he'll say words and say phrases. He has echolalia, so he'll repeat certain things, Hmm. even music. Um, But I feel like he knows a lot, but sometimes it's just somewhere stuck. And he's Hmm. trying to figure out how he can get it out to us. And it's funny, earlier today, he walked up and asked me, um, he was walking with animal crackers, and he walked up and pointed one in my face and Hmm. said, mommy, you want one? And I was like, uh, what? Yes. Yeah. I'm, yes. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh. And my husband was like, I've never heard him say that before. I was like, I know it's yeah. been so long for me. And I just, I just took it and just like, try not to overwhelm him. Like with like, oh, sure. thank you for talking to me. But you know, I just take every moment as a gift. And yeah, there's a lot that, um, there's a lot in when you do like the comparison thing. And so I try mm. not to do that. <laughs> I think that's such a common thing, especially, I mean, with autism, especially, right. You know, that like families where there's maybe a neurotypical child and a neurodiverse child, um, much like in your case, you know, there is that comparison game that can be played. And it seems to me that a lot of families that have, you know, where there's a sibling who is on the spectrum, there's, always that adjustment period when the diagnosis happens of going from like, this is a disability to this is just the way that the child is. And it it has no bearing on their value and their worth in the world. Exactly. And it really, and it's interesting because society makes it that way as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like this pressure to conform and I hate it. And I hate that it's even there. Mm -hmm. And even to get comments for Christian is, well, he doesn't seem autistic or yeah, he doesn't look like he has autism or I know somebody with autism. He doesn't do this. <laughs> What's his gift? And I'm like, he's, he, he's him. He doesn't, his gift is that he's he, an individual. He's, Thank he's, you. He's, he's a human. What do you mean? What is it? Yeah. Well, they, all the autistic people have something that they're really good at. You just have to find that out. Hmm. And I just want to punch somebody in their face. <laughs> just don't talk to me right now. Like, this is not what we're doing. But yeah, there is this uh, like underlying uh, acceptance that we have, even as as parents and Mm -hmm. realizing that he won't do the things that I did growing up or his siblings are probably going to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And during this whole COVID experience, it's interesting because now things are never going back to a normal. But for Christian, he's never been a part of like a normal, you know, demographic anyway. So Mm. we're all kind of like getting into his little world because it's like nothing I've ever done. I'm thinking like he's saying like nothing I've ever done has been anything like y'all. And so (laughs) I'm always used to changing and things like, you know, not, you know, having to adapt who he is to fit everybody else. But also having that more concentrated time when we're stuck indoors and in lockdown and stuff like that. It's probably got to be positive. It's probably reinforcing all your bonds. I think so. I think it's really, it definitely has its uh, moments where we're all in here and like, we're all tired of each other. I mean, six kids and and a new husband. That's a lot. (laughs) We're all here, but I think you're right. It makes us stronger. And it definitely has been working on our communication because you can't avoid anything when you're all staring at each other. 
you know, plate of the day. Like we're all looking at each other. You're going to get it out. It's going to rise to the surface and you're going to deal with it. Because at the end of the day, we're all family. We're all here. We all love each other. Mm. So what are you going to do? Yeah. You can't hold on to it. I'm wondering as well, like when Christian was getting these diagnoses when you were younger as well, was that something, was there an awareness of mortality or like the finality of these definitive diagnoses in terms of your lifespan and going like, all right, so he's a child who's going to grow into an adult who's probably going to need care. And this is a child who won't grow up and leave home, right? Like what is that awareness like as a parent? I think it's becoming, as he gets older, it's becoming, um, I'm becoming more aware of that. I think Mm. I've tried to avoid it for a long time. Interesting. Because I've always had this hope that maybe, you know, the seizure will stop and we'll finally get it together. And then he'll be able to tell us exactly what he wants to do. And then he'll have options and he can do whatever he likes. And now he's 15 and he's still having seizures every day. And I'm like, oh, wow, 18 is three years away. We've had these conversations for the last 13 or so years. Um, and I was a single parent for a, a, a lot of the time after my divorce and then, you know, having relationships and trying to find work and making sure that things are balanced because people don't like to hire people who are not reliable. And unfortunately, mm. Christian, it, that required me to go to doctor's appointments or go to speech therapy or go to OT or PT or he had a seizure and now we're in ER and they don't understand that. And it's not, um, it's the work life balance is difficult. And now I think I'm now accepting that he may stay with me forever. And that's fine. Even though I always kind of knew it it might happen. I never felt prepared for that Mm. until like most recently and knowing, um, being able to monetize my gifts and learning how I can do things successfully from home helping other people with their stuff and realizing that, Oh, I can do this. I can help people. I can get paid so I can support my family so I can be Mm -hmm. able to afford Christian and all the things that he needs and his siblings and all the things that they need. So I just, I think it's, it's been an adjustment and it's definitely been a roller coaster of emotions. It's not like one thing. And it's, I think I, I have moments where it's like, Oh, wow, this is, this is something that's going to happen. And the kids will ask, well, is Christian going to be able to go live somewhere else? Does he even want to live with you? And he probably doesn't. And I think that's something that I have to accept too. Like He's at that age where mom and dad are not cool anymore. No, like <laughs> Christian, he gets tired of me too. And I think that um, as parents opening up and I'm realizing I have to listen to his brothers and sisters sometimes because there are sometimes, you know, they'll say, mom, he doesn't want to do that. Or mm. he, he just, he likes this. And I'm like, well, and also no. you're, you're managing a lot of people's opinions and feelings, all at once. especially like this right. is the, the, the gifted curse of being a mother, right? Is that right. especially with many children, you're constantly sort of working around what everyone else needs, especially with COVID going on where it's like, you're also doing mm-hmm. homeschooling and like everything that is happening right now, that's forcing you to look inward even more yes. as you're also looking inward with yourself. I mean, even publicly you've been really open about like getting to a place of body acceptance with yourself and mental health acceptance with yourself. So like finding your own center, let alone your own center in the midst of the needs and feelings of all these other things of yours. (laughs) Yes. I think that's so true because that's all part of self-care. And Mm -hmm. for a long time I avoided taking care of myself, not realizing the children are all watching how I'm taking care of myself. 
Hmm. And that's a reflection of themselves. Yeah. So if I'm not taking care of me, then they're not feeling like they're worthy of taking care of themselves. And so I'm pouring all this stuff into them and they're looking like, but mom, you're drained. So you're not even giving us your full self because you don't have your full self to give. Mm. That makes sense. So this has been like totally a a wake up this COVID stuff. And it's really put us to a place where it's like had to stop me from moving so much because I've always like, oh, move, move, move. And then the kids will say, you know, mom's favorite thing is to work. And I'm like, no, it's not like that. Just like that I have work. to. I have <laughs> to work. Like, don't yeah. you want things? But, you know, like now I'm realizing, okay, they, that's all they see. They see mommy yeah. working or mommy doing something. And I'm like, oh, I hate that. I don't like that. So that's, I mean, that's partially, that's, that's our culture here, isn't it? It's like, that's yeah. life in the U.S., especially if you have a child who's living with disabilities. Because like, as you said, there are jobs that you haven't been able to take because they were discriminating against you as a special needs mom. Yep. And if, once they find out, I would avoid even mentioning any home life in an interview or anything. Of course. They're never going to, like, I'm not about to answer any of these questions about personal mm. or anything. You know, I'm not going to give them anything extra. I'll get the job and then maybe I'll keep it for six months, maybe a year until they figure out, like, oh, okay, she's not as reliable. As... I do good work when I'm there, but, you know. But your priority is your family. Not... Fair enough. Yeah. So it, it has definitely been a struggle. So talk to us about, I mean, in the midst of all this, you founded Special Needs Siblings. And there's no one who knows better, <laughs> right? You know, what it's like to have one child who is living with disabilities and other children who are at some point probably going to, and you, you say this on the website for Special Needs Siblings too, like at some point these kids are going to probably take over in Christian's care, right? So how has that looked for you in terms of an advocacy journey where you've been an advocate for Christian, you're aware of your kids stepping into that role as well. And you're wanting to support other families who are going through the same. I didn't even see it at first. I didn't see them. I didn't see that they had a struggle or they had a need. And that's what's so funny about even your podcast, you know, the invisible, uninvisible. It's like, I see them now. I see them trying. And for a long time, um, Caleb would ask me to take medicine and I'm like when I would give Christian his nightly meds he's like can I have medicine so I'm like stop pretending you want to have medicine or why do you want to sit in his wheelchair you know and I would get so defensive like you're well you're good you don't have to worry about any of the stuff your brother's struggling with but that's I think that, that was yes like he's looking at him like well that's still my brother and mom you spend so much time with him like mm-hmm. if I have something going on then maybe I'll get some of that attention too mm-hmm. maybe I'll get some of that time and he had to be like six or seven and I didn't even realize it a few years ago and so I started reaching out online on Instagram thank God for Facebook communities and realizing like wow there's a lot of other parents just like myself that are trying to figure it out and there are adult siblings that wish somebody would have asked them questions sooner or included them in the conversation. And so I think that with special needs siblings, when that started and we became like an official nonprofit and realizing that we can help or we can at least connect communities together and be able to share resources with each other and then share because our siblings do oftentimes become caregivers, especially the females in the family. And that is fact, like just just how it happens, but there's not a lot of support for the siblings. 
and siblings will become caregivers for themselves, their parents, and if they have a family, their own children, and they have a spouse. It's just so much pressure. It's so much work, and it's so challenging, but it's something that they don't um, usually feel forced into doing. Like, they want to be a part of this conversation. They want to be included, and so making sure that they feel like they're prepared, number one, and making sure that community has, they have support and they're um, able to find that. And so especially siblings is all about raising awareness to the siblings in our families, raising support, raising resources and figuring out ways that we can work together and better support the siblings. Because I know my children are young now, but eventually they will be older. And they love to meet older siblings and they love to meet siblings like themselves and to just know that I'm not the only one that stays up all night because my brother was screaming yesterday or my brother hit me and I feel bad for hating him right now because I know he's going to have a seizure in an hour and I'm going to feel bad. I want to help him, but he really pisses me off sometimes and I don't know how to like say this. But that's okay. And it's okay. And it's, there's a freedom in being able to say, mom, I don't want to be around Christian. Like he's getting on my nerves and that he's making me really upset. And for a long time, they wouldn't even say anything negative about him because they felt guilty. And that's so heavy. And there's such a weight to carry as a child to never express it. And then to become an adult and to never have dealt with any of those issues. So that's where we're at with that. (laughs) I mean, it's so amazing because like, I think in this disability community, there's a lot of support for patients. Um, you know, a lot of foundations that are designed to support patients, but it's a rarer conversation that we have about supporting caregivers. And it's such an important one, right? This idea that you brought up about sometimes we're so stuck in our own experiences that we forget to look outside ourselves and suddenly realize that we're actually not alone. Um, because I think it's very easy to feel alone in these circumstances too, and to feel like your situation is unique, especially if you don't have anyone in your immediate circle who's going through similar experiences. But this concept of longer term support for children who are currently in a caregiving role and will be taking on more responsibility in the future and being able to foster that advocacy and that, that love continuing that, that, conversation in an open way is like, to me, it's so radically accepting and radically beautiful. And it says a lot about who you are as a mom that you were thinking about, okay, so my kids and my kids connections. And um, I just think it's so wonderful. Like, and I said to you before we started the interview, like, I wish I had a sibling to go through what I went through with, you know, cause it's like, yeah. sometimes we want that person who's close like that. And of course, not all sibling relationships are going to be that close, but mm-hmm you know, the fact that your kids seem to all be really close and, and are going to grow up with support, like that's got to be, as you say, like, it's heavy for them to carry around some of the guilt that they carry around, but it's also got to be in some ways a relief for you that you've been able to create some structure for them. I feel very blessed that they have each other because at the end of the day, I feel like Christian won't be alone. And I think that that gives me a lot of peace and letting me know that um, prayerfully I'm in a position and everyone's taken care of. And so he's not a burden to them. Hmm. Should well, he's not a burden, him. period. No, no, he's not. But that weight that sometimes siblings will feel that their brother or their sister is a burden. Hmm. And 
if you as a parent haven't prepared things, if you haven't made answered those questions, if you haven't put things in, in order, and it's like you're stepping into a role that you have no idea about. And so it's like, an, it's not that you're a burden as a person or as a human or as an individual, but sometimes there are things that you don't know about. And so there's like this underlying, like, how do I catch up? How do I get up to speed on something that I've never been included in a conversation in? Mm-hmm. And that's what siblings that are adults sometimes feel like if something well, happens. And it's and yeah. it's it's just, it's the truth. And I think that the more we talk about it and say like, as a parent, how do I prepare for the unexpected? You want to be prepared for whatever may come. And should anything happen to any of the children, I want to make sure that we're as prepared as possible for every possibility. And um, so I'm, that's what I mean when I say like, okay, I don't want to make sure that my kids are good and I want to make sure that they're aware and I'm happy that they have each other because yeah. from Rose, who was five, Raymond, who was five, to Jada and Caleb, who, and Tian, who I got 16 years old, I got a 13 year old, 11 year old. If Christian has a seizure, they will come and find me. They mm. will lay him on his side. They will, Rose will come and bring her sticker book of band aids and like place it on his head. And he just will just sit there, they'll grab a blanket and they'll just, they'll let people know in the store if he has, you know, he needs space right now. Mm. and he needs a he'll need something they'll definitely say it like no he's fine just you know can you stand over here and I'm Mm. just hoping that I'm preparing them for anything and so they're not um they're not without knowledge and I think that's where they used to feel powerless around their friends if he would have a seizure because they couldn't even speak about it they didn't know and so his their friends would ask them why is he flapping his arms or why did he fall out on the um on the uh on, on the, the swing why did he fall uh, like what's happening you know what happened and they couldn't articulate it jada and caleb mm-hmm. and so they would be upset or they'd be you know embarrassed and instead of feeling pride or feeling you know protection or you know just anything more of a positive emotion because they had no knowledge i was yeah. trying to protect them from their brother and all the things that were going on and me protecting them was leaving them powerless to communicate how they were feeling to and probably wearing you too. That's it's all, it's all. So yeah. I, I think that that's, it's all about educating and, you know, there's a lot of power in education and just asking those questions that people mm. aren't really, um, you know, you just don't think about often. Yeah. I just think it's so beautiful. So what is a typical day looking like for the family? I mean, I know it's sort of unprecedented times right now because of COVID, mm-hmm. but as you're balancing and you touched on this earlier, the demands of work and life, you know, working around Christian's potential symptoms, potential seizures and working with the kids, how does that all work out with you guys? Do you have to have a really organized system or do you sort of work as a unit? We work as a unit, but I've been getting on more of a system. Um, mm-hmm. Now that they don't go to school, we do homeschooling. Yeah. So that has been an adjustment being at home because I just couldn't risk taking them back to school and then something happening where they bring something back home or Absolutely. just anything. I don't want anything to happen. So we've been at home doing the homeschooling thing and nine to one o'clock it is school time at the mm-hmm. house so everyone's doing i wish my school day had been nine to one i oh, mean i'm perfect. telling you i try and tell them like this is a this is a good thing and yeah, like, enjoy this like, 
They're like, we don't like homeschooling. I'm like, oh gosh. I feel like those are much better hours to learn though. I mean, we have so many studies that that show that kids going to school at seven and eight in the morning, their brains aren't working yet. No, you know? I don't even want to get up that early. No. So like, yeah, I asked them. It's funny because I asked them, I'm like, so do you want to do early afternoon, you know, learning or earlier? Mm. And so they're like, let's get it over with. So yeah. we do nine to one and we do a Monday through Thursday. We don't even have school Friday. That's so it's great. Monday through Thursday and all learning. And it's interesting because mm. Christian is, I don't like to say like, oh, he's at um, Rose and Raymond's level because I don't like to put him in a category of simply like his age or what they think sure. he's supposed to know. But he's doing his alphabet. He We're doing mm. A's and like this week we're doing B's. And so you know, the twins are learning their B's. Christian's like doing his writing. Some days he'll be up and he'll want to participate. Other days he may have had a seizure and he just wants to lay in bed. That's okay. I don't try and put a lot of pressure on him to come and um, do more than his body allows him to do. And I think that that's where the school was, it was rough for him because he would sleep half the day when he would go to school. And so um, just being mindful and him being home has been able for me I can see exactly how his day probably used to go when he was at school when he would go to school and when they the teacher mm. would write and say like he fell asleep he had a seizure now I see and uh, we try to get him up to do some work but now he's able to rest it off and then if he wants to do his worksheet or something later I'll sit down with him he loves reading so we'll do reading books Jade and Caleb are focusing on they have assignments that they do but like this week we've been doing um we'll take trips. Last week we went camping. This week we're going to Alabama to visit the Legacy Museum. And we're learning like all of our Af- our African-American history. We're, they are half Hispanic. So they're learning like Mexican-American history, asking a lot of questions. And I'm welcoming questions because I think that that's something that um, I'm hoping we can do more of because our unschool homeschool approaches, I want them to kind of lead the way when it comes to their learning. I want them to tell me what interests they have. And we just kind of like follow, follow their lead a little bit. And then like, um, give them access, make sure that they're around people that look like them in fields that they are interested in and see if this is something you're really interested in. Cause I think people do that in college. I wasn't, I didn't go to college, but my husband did. And I know a lot of people who'll go and then they're like, I didn't even, I don't even do anything that I majored in. Yeah. And it's interesting yeah. to hear stuff like that, to know that um, this is the age that they could be learning and dabbling into different things and the different seeing, you know, checking accounts, savings accounts, finance. Oh, I wish I'd learned that stuff in today. school. Huh. This is the type of stuff I would love for you guys to learn practical yeah. things that, you know, there's a million things they can teach you in school, but nothing's going back to normal right now. Yeah. So why stress myself out or I stress the kids out and mm. let's do our nine to one Monday through Thursday. It doesn't look the same almost every day, but I've heard from a lot of homeschooling moms that mm. the schedule is the hardest part to get. So if we can get the schedule right, yeah. I'm Mrs. D during nine <laughs> to one. Do not call me mom. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. 
Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. What about you? What about work for you? Because, you know, again, I mean, I love this, like, this education model that you're you're bringing to the kids because you're sort of offering them something and saying, what, what do you want to do rather than dictating what they have to do? So how does it look for you to be also finding work that works around your schedule and the family's needs? It feels really good. I actually work on websites and helping people with their marketing, like um, social media and small businesses or nonprofits in our area. So we started a company, me and my husband. And so we do that marketing and I can do that usually after they go to sleep or I can, you know, I get it on a schedule on the weekend I'm working on it. So things are like kind of, you have to create work for yourself. It sounds like too. Yeah. You got to make it, you got to make it work. And there's so much opportunities out here right now, especially Mm. in light of COVID people are a lot more understanding. Everyone's so flexible and there are people all need help and they need assistance and realizing that, the internet is not the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, being online is not the enemy. Connecting with people online is not the enemy. So we don't have to be in person to be successful or be productive. And being busy is not being productive either. So I like to remind people like, at my busiest, I wasn't producing much. But now that I'm more at peace with the family, we're on a schedule. I feel like I'm way more productive than I've ever been. And I'm making sure that things are getting done. And I'm hopefully um, showing the kids that rather than telling them that they can see it happening. Mm. Um, There's no doubt you're an excellent role model to them. What about, um, I'm also wondering about, you know, Christian's 15 now, right? So Mm -hmm. in a few years, he's going to age out of pediatric care. And I know that support services, particularly for children who are on the autism spectrum, that there's like a big disconnect between the pediatric and adult support services. Have you been looking into the future and considering what that's going to look like for you guys as well and and what's available and not available to you? Actually, yes, we have. We're in Georgia right now. In the next two months, I'll be making a trip to Colorado, a trip to Chicago, a Mm. trip to California. I was going to say, come here, we've got great disability stuff. Yes, (laughs) that's exactly what my, I said, if we Mm. can't, we're going to have to go where there's care, where, where, now that we have employment and we are self-employed and we can kind of be a little little bit more uh, flexible, we are going to have to move, we're going to have to be, you know. But this is uprooting the whole family, like eight of you are going to have to move somewhere else in the country so that you can get adequate support services for Christian. I mean, this is so scary, but this is, it's also, that's a huge expense and it's Mm -hmm. a huge expense, not only financially, but also emotionally to be able to have to move away from, you know, family, family, things like that. And, and you're not the only family that's in a position that has to do that. So, you know, it's interesting to me that this is such a common narrative in families where there is a disability present, you know, that like, 
we're going to have to uproot ourselves. That's just the reality of it because different states. There's not other option. I have not met an adult um, here or someone that's caregiving for an adult that's had a very positive adult experience in Georgia, especially not African-American. Like I have not been able to find a family. A lot of the families I know as our kids are getting older, they're moving different places. And so that's why I even say these areas because I know people personally that have moved to different areas and um, that experience better care. And it's unfortunate, but it's just the truth. And I'm even looking at different countries at this point, like one day, you know, once all these, this stuff happens, like maybe there are other countries that are even better for us. And what does that even look like? What should I be expecting for Christian um, as he gets older? And then making sure that I take into account their brothers and sisters, because moving is not easy for anybody. And I definitely don't want to, um, I, I don't want to hurt them more than I'm helping them, you know, even I if think I'm they know though. Like, yeah. Sounds and like I you guys are, and, yeah, you're, know. you're informing each other and, and they're enough aware of what's going on with his needs. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, we're talking about invisible diagnoses here mm-hmm. and I wonder whether you've ever been in a position where you've been confronted. I mean, I know you've had people say, well, he doesn't look autistic and things like, you know, that kind of ignorant stuff, but where you've had to been forced to justify the existence of Christian's diagnoses or, or validate his existence to people who just didn't understand it because they couldn't see it. What have those situations looked like for you guys? Mm. Well, I can even, it's different and different depending on where I'm at and the people that I'm around. I know that there are some things Christian does and because he doesn't look like he has a disability and he's older now, people are less forgiving of him Mm. and some of his, um, from some of his actions, like even from kicking rocks while he's walking down the street and Mm. people will say things like, you know, get your child and, He's not necessarily bothering anybody, but he's doing something that no one else would probably do is like kick the same rock all the way down the street or mm. picking things up and putting them in his pocket and not speaking to somebody when they, you know, speak to him first and things like that. And I think that um, when he's young, when he was younger, it was a little cuter and people laugh it off. And now he's like has a mustache coming and his mm. voice is a little deeper and, you know, people are just kind of... Um, they're just waiting for something or waiting for him to do something. And I think. Well, do you think that's also, that sounds like inherent bias to me too. That's. Oh, it's very much so. Very healthy dose of racism, right? Very, very much so. But it's nothing that as a mother, I have to like be very, um, I'm more aware than he is clearly. And Mm. we're always like just trying to protect him, but even um, going to the hospital and he broke, he's broken bones. And he won't, he has a high pain tolerance. So he Mm. won't say something's hurting him. So I've been to the ER and he's broken his toes and they told me like, there's nothing wrong or it's just Mm. a small fracture. He doesn't need any pain medicine because he's not crying. And it's like, he's in a lot of pain. You may not be able to see he's in pain, but I know he's in pain. Don't tell me he's not in pain, but I'm pressing on it. You just show me, you show me a screen with his broken you don't think he's in pain at all mm. he's not crying like he doesn't really cry that doesn't mean he should sit here hurting because he's not saying anything to you 
And um, I'll is that, see that kind of advocacy? Is that something you learned from your mom? Um, that like not taking the question. first answer. Oh yeah, yeah. She definitely will. Yeah, and sometimes I'll even call her. I'm like, mom, um, they're in here. This is. She's like, nope. Just say it like this, or let put me on the phone, and you know, put me on speakerphone. Let me hear what they have to say, because I don't think that they don't always take your first. They don't, they don't respect me as their, the mother that I know, you know, what's best for him. Or I can feel, I can sense that he's in pain, even if he's not expressing it or sharing with them. So I have to fight for stuff like that with him, fight for him to stay in the hospital for extra day because the seizures are not under control. Even though I'll say he has seizures every day. I'm like, I still want him to stay here overnight because these are not the same type of seizures he has every day. These are different. Like, it's a little different. And they will push back. No, I think he's, I'm not signing any papers to leave here until he's been tested and you guys have tested this blood or this one or we're adjusting this type of medicine. Well, he said he already had, he has seizures all the time. So, you know, I think he can just go home now. And it's like the fact that we can like sit here and be okay with the fact that he had 10 seizures today. And that's fine because his baseline is 10. I, it just makes me cringe. And um, it makes me want to up and leave the state of Georgia. But I, I've never had like the opportunity to be able to do that. And so I'm definitely grateful for our, all the advocates and everybody talking about all these things that are going on in this unspoken word in our communities that you know, people don't like to listen. They don't like to listen. They like to tell you how you should be doing things, even as a mother, as a minority, as, you know, your opinions are not considered valid unless you come with like a book or like my mother who already knows the ins and outs of the medical system to be able to say certain things to, you know, get you to think a little bit. So I think that, um, that's own that's our self advocacy and knowing our rights and educating ourselves. Yeah. I mean it sounds like you guys have definitely done that and I'm sure that's part of the ongoing work of special needs siblings and I'm also wondering I mean cuz this sounds like it's both social and in healthcare but these experiences of prejudice that you've had not only as a woman but as a woman of color and that Christians experiencing as a young black man you know can you see your experiences some of those circumstances being different if you guys presented differently, if he were a young white boy, if you were a man advocating for him or a white person advocating for him, how do you think things might be a little different, particularly in healthcare? I think that I wouldn't receive as much pushback. Um, I have heard, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, white mothers that have, you know, said certain things and said, well, my experience wasn't like that, or I really like that doctor, you know, and I've read comments and I'm like, that doctor did not do that for me. Like that was not me. And the more I realize the importance of finding healthcare providers that look like you sometimes and will take your, take you at your word and you don't have to prove yourself. And I feel like that extra mile where I have to be better or I have to do more I have to come with a little bit more knowledge than my counterparts it's like okay I've been doing this my entire life like (laughs) I know how this works and so I know I have certain things that um that I could probably get away with if I were a white man I know that that would probably 
I wouldn't have pushback with some of the white male doctors. Um, they would give me that benefit of the doubt. And even being a white woman coming in with like one child or two child, even coming with like five children, people like kind of be just really dismissive of you. I'm like, oh, well, you know, you did that to yourself. And it's like, you know, I didn't do anything to myself. And, you know, this isn't, they're not a burden to me. Like, they're not a problem. I need your help. This is why I'm here. I'm not here for you to judge me and to tell me, you know, don't do this or um, this is how you should be doing this. Or do you know how these children were here? And I'm like, you have to say certain things and realize that um, you just have to leave that healthcare provider <laughs> like that. Even yeah. if you hear like the nurses or the medical assistants, like this all trickles down from the leadership. Like this all is a part of it. And for people, your receptionist from the receptionist taking you into making comments, that all goes back to the atmosphere of the care that you've been giving and the care that they give you. Cause I worked at Emory in patient health for a little while and I was around doctors and nurses and I used to see you know you see how people treat you and you see the ones that they'll let slide or you know they'll let them be late to the appointment sometimes and they'll give them that extra benefit and you see the ones that they will hold that 10 minute oh you're late we're not accepting you we don't want to hear from you we don't have any time for your excuses and then or what kind of health insurance you have. I mean, that right mm -hmm. there, if they, if you're just straight disability Medicaid, you're not going to get this. If you're your coming second class, you're saying, yeah, it's just, it's just really unfortunate, but it's the truth. Mm -hmm. And you notice that you notice mm -hmm. the type of, um, your care you receive and you can yeah. feel it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, would you say that these racial and gender inequities in the healthcare system are a public health crisis of their own? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Because it's no one said no to that question yet. No. I'm, I'm just I'm having a point home over here. I'm like, hello. <laughs> Please let me meet someone who doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does that also become a, a conversation as part of special needs siblings too? Like, do you guys talk about the role of race and gender in these situations? Because I know like with autism, especially like that's considered right. Like a white boy's illness or disability. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to me, like these preconceived notions that people have about these diagnoses, right. but then also the racism and the prejudice that is constantly, I mean, you're having to work around that all the time. All the time. And for a long time, honestly, on my account, on Instagram and on Facebook, I didn't even put a face to special needs siblings because I was getting so much, um, I had a fear that if they knew that it was a black woman running this account, they would not accept the things that I was saying. Wow. So I didn't even talk about my family and bring our, our story into it until almost two years of being in. Like I would just share other people's stories. I would hear and I would, you know, I've never put a face to it. And then when I finally did, people were so accepting. I had a few people that were like, oh, you know, a little pushback. But for the most part, the fear that I had over all the years of experience that I had, you know, traumas and things in my own personal life when it came to like pushing back against things. Um, I thought it was safer for me to be silent and to leave my race card out the table because this is not about me. This is about the siblings. But then realizing that there are a lot of siblings of color out here that need assistance. They need help and they, um, they won't be able to get it if we don't talk about it. And if we're not talking about, um, we're not talking about race but it's happening. People see it. And 
with all this yeah, stuff that we're talking about right. race. We so. are. <laughs> and it's just funny that you would say that because for a long time, I did not even, I wouldn't even discuss it. And now we're literally trying to partner with some other sibling organizations and having I think I lost you again. Part of over the years in my community. Oh, um, you were just you were just saying um, uh, connecting with other sibling organizations. Yeah, so we're trying to connect with some sibling organizations to put on like panels for siblings mm -hmm. of color to be able to share their experiences. That's amazing. I know as a mother, I've had pushback trying to join support groups for even like siblings in our community and wow. just not feeling very welcomed at all. As a woman of and color? You, yes, because mm -hmm. it's like this unspoken, like, oh, why is she here? And well, what that is, is racism. Yes. I mean, like, that's, yes. that's, it's, not, very, I mean, it's unspoken by the racists, but like, no. that's what that is. It's definitely out there. And it's something that I've experienced since I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood school. You know, there was a time that I was like one of the only black girls in my class. And so realizing like, okay, this stuff, it's still so heavy. It's so everywhere. And it's so exhausting to have to like um, continue this conversation, but you can't stop talking about it because then they win. Like you can't just go silent on the fact that this is an issue, even if we're still talking about it, because this is something we live with every day. So making sure that I do show my face, making sure I do show my children's face, make sure I do share all siblings and letting them know that there are siblings out here that look like you parents there are other people out here and that that this is this is an issue that we all have and there's and that it's a valid narrative yes so yeah i definitely absolutely. um have been trying to do more of that and sharing all of that information yeah i mean there's no better time as we're confronting systemic racism once again <laughs> Um, to be, <laughs> because it never went away for those no, of you who are wondering. It's here. <laughs> yeah, it's here. Uh, and I mean, it sounds like you are doing everything that's within your power to confront it, but it's also about recognizing that that's not just your work alone, that yeah. it requires the support of people who are maybe outside that experience as well to move these conversations along in every group, right? Like we're all responsible for continuing that conversation. Yes. We all need to help. Like this is yeah. not going to be done by itself and it's not going to be done in one day. So it's, no. just, it's an ongoing effort. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, it's interesting too, because, you know, you talk about having kept your family's story sort of shrouded when you launched special needs siblings and becoming more public with your story over time. And, you know, there are probably a lot of white families where that wouldn't even have been a consideration. Nope. You know, so just like for people to understand what privilege looks like in that situation and, and what considerations you are making that are in addition to the concerns that other people with this experience might have. So, I mean, let's dig a little more into the healthcare system too, because since we're talking about it, <laughs> um, I'm wondering in your experience in, in what ways the healthcare system is working for patients like Christian and in what ways it's falling short. I mean, I know we're touching on this when it comes to racism and, and gender inequity, um, but are there specific experiences that you can think of with Christian's care where there were things that really worked and things that really didn't? I think it depends on the provider. 
it always depends on the provider. You can tell when somebody cares. So I think that the more empathy, I mean, you say like doctors and they're here to help and heal, but you can tell when somebody cares about you as a person, rather you as a patient. And they're like, they're making your experience your own. And so that right there, I've had some really, really good doctors for Christian that I've been able to find. And that's through talking to other people and getting referrals because there are some that are very dismissive. And I mean, honestly, you're just, you're the patient. You come in, it is four o'clock. You ask a couple questions. Thank you. Here, we can diagnose them with this and that's it. And it's like, you can tell when somebody genuinely cares. And I think that here in Georgia, I've had the pleasure of having a few of them that are just, they really go above and beyond just listening. And I think also including, sometimes they'll include their siblings in the conversation. Like just simply asking, hey guys, how are you? How have you guys been since the last visit? And just remembering that um, it's a whole family here. So Christian's diagnosis isn't just Christian's diagnosis. Sometimes it's like, we're all in this, like we all are trying to help him and be there. And so when we have questions, it's not to bother you as a doctor. Like we're, we're genuinely just don't know. And realizing that the things we don't know, not berating us for not doing them because we are simply, I mean, our lack of knowledge doesn't mean we're stupid. Like we just don't know mm-hmm. something. Well, like, I would say that you guys probably know more than most as well. Right. Having started your own nonprofit, like you're no stranger to the research. So like, if you don't know something and a doctor berates you for not knowing it at that point, that doctor is just a horrible person. <laughs> yes. They're, 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 an ass. they're like, they can go. And I think yeah. that that's something that I'm um, using your rights. I think mm. that, um, that's something that I, I think learning as patients learn more about, you know, writing a letter, you know, complaining mm-hmm. and telling them like, this is how I feel about you. And this is how I feel about your service. Mm-hmm. Even if you were to leave, I think sometimes you have to remind people and let them know, like, this is something that, um, this is something you did really well. And this is something you could do better because doctors are not perfect either. Doctors are people. And, and they're people you're paying for a service as yeah. well. <laughs> like- yeah. So I'm definitely, um, that's something in our healthcare system that I think that um, works is when you can have that open communication hmm. and that open dialogue with your, with your care provider. I and it shuts down when you can't. Yes. And hmm. move, move on. Yeah. And letting, um, knowing you have power in choosing. And I think, I mean, that even goes back to your insurance. And I think that's something that we don't do very well with like insurance and hmm healthcare in itself, I mean, it's a privilege to have access to healthcare. And I think um, that's a problem. There's a big gap between in our healthcare system. I mean, it's just aside from the like what we were talking about earlier, that pediatric to adult care for someone who has, you know, cognitive disabilities or is neurodiverse like yeah. that's also a problem isn't it you very know the lack of guidance like, yeah very yeah. different I mean but those aren't integrated. entitlement stuff to that you know eligible and trying to if you're entitled to something or not and and what makes care. anyone not entitled to care period you would think that you, yeah. you would think that we'd all want each other to be the, our best selves but 
But that's the role. I mean, would you say that that's also like the role of capitalism and the role of like the privatization of healthcare? It's money. Yeah. yeah it's money. But that's the problem. It's money. Yeah. From the pharmacy to the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. company, from everybody, it's all money. And yeah. the fact that there's so much, I mean, even like when you're trying to think about trying to do things healthy and living better and doing things a natural way, that's even not just buying organic food. About. Yeah. No, yeah, they don't want to talk about that. Like, that's not something that you even hear from most of your providers. And yeah. you know, um, they want to push that medicine, trying to like, yes. they don't want you to be well, like not live well, you know, they want you to depend on them. Or they want you to like eat organic food when you live in a food desert, right? Like, yeah. that's a problem. And that's, that's also, right. that has everything to do with socioeconomic status. All of it. All yeah. of it. Big system. It's like just big She's making a circle with her oh, finger. That's true. Wheel. Yeah, hamster it is. <laughs> it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and it's a hamster wheel we're all running on because we have no other choice. Nope. We're all here. And yeah. I, I don't even have all the solutions for this. It's just, it's sick. You don't have to. You're, you're allowed to just complain. Yep. <laughs> I give you full permission. But let's let's switch gears a little bit into something a little more positive. I would love you to give some tips to people tuning into this episode as someone who is a caregiver and has empowered other caregivers um, of someone who's living with disabilities, what would your top three tips be for someone who suspects a loved one might be heading down this road of diagnosis or is, you know, maybe their loved one is already living with diagnosis? What would your top three tips be for caregivers? Get a journal. Mm. Um, your feelings are going to fluctuate and you're going to want to remember where you were and how you were feeling when you heard it, how you're feeling the moment you accepted it or somebody said something. I think that as time goes on, things change, feelings change, but it's nice to always have something um, to look back on and see your growth because the truth is tomorrow is going to be so much different than today and it's all okay. Um, self-care, making sure you're okay and finding a good, good tribe, find your community, find people who support you. And if you get the vibe wrong, then they're not your people. Like it's okay. <laughs> I don't care if it's a family member or a friend or whatever. I mean, you have the right to let people go and you don't have to explain it to anybody. I think that's something that took me a long time. And I think that um, we have to have permission to let strangers in because sometimes strangers will become your best friend and those best friends will become strangers. And that's just the facts because um, nobody's going to really understand all of what it is you're feeling and um, mm. can't expect them to. So I think that, the, I don't know if that's three things. That is three. Cause I think the last one is like, you know, find your people, but also be able to let go of the people who aren't your people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What about three things for you as a caregiver that give you unbridled joy? Where do you turn when you need to be refilling your cup or giving yourself a moment of, of pleasure. Um, and that could be, you know, a guilty pleasure. It could be a secret indulgence. It can also be something you do out loud and show your kids to do and model your behavior. But 
you know, a comfort activity or something that gives you joy as a hardworking mom and an advocate, where do you turn? Um, I turn off all of devices. <laughs> I love that. You, you turn somewhere by turning off. <laughs> I, turn off. I think I just have to check. That's my way of like getting back to peace is to checking in, checking into just being, mm. you know, present with myself. Um, I am a sweets person. So, yeah. oh my gosh, I'm trying to eat better. But when I say that, like, red velvet cake or yep. like, like some type of cake or something, that is my, I have some hiding somewhere. I'll hide them from kids. <laughs> I do not want to. I mean, you've got five, well, six kids. <laughs> yes. You've got to, like, hide those sweets from them. Yeah, I mean, they will find it. They're little hunters. <laughs> <laughs> then they all want a piece. And I'm like, Oh, this is just <laughs> you don't appreciate oh, this. <laughs> I gave birth to you. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, what else do I, uh, we have a garden that we're building. And I, that's been a new uh, thing for me is like planting and just being out. Even though I get bit up sometimes, just, so. just getting outside. Um, and that's something that also the kids can learn in the garden too. Yes. yes. Yeah. And they like to be, I mean, they don't like to be out there for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do like to see, like we saw our tomatoes growing this morning and they were like, Oh my God, that's really a tomato. Not the one at the store. And I'm like, yeah, we- it's really satisfying. Like, yeah. yeah. So you guys did this, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's my way of kind of sharing that with them, but that's what I do. I just kind of check out and check in with ourselves, eat sweets and go garden. <laughs> I think you and I have much in common on all three of those things. <laughs> you are right then. We're going to get all this conversation and we're going to like be friends. <laughs> well, that's why I warned you. I love this. <laughs> so what is your ask for listeners today? What can people do to support you, to support special needs siblings and the community in the work that you guys continue to do? They can go and follow us we're on Instagram, or on Facebook, special needs siblings, they can come on our website, www.specialneedssiblings.com. We have a donate button. You can come and you can reach out and figure out, volunteer with us. Um, we have sibling boxes that we have that we're doing now. And so we're always accepting Aww. donations where we're sending um, boxes to siblings all around the world and just sharing okay. with them how special they are. And, you know, just they open it up and know this is theirs. So this is for them. So anyway, you want to get involved, you can send me an email and Janice at specialneedsiblings.com. That's J-E-N-I-E-C-E at specialneedsiblings.com. And so I'd love to hear from you guys anytime. I love that. And what's next for you in the advocacy journey, but also in your personal and family wellness? Oh, goodness. We are, well, like I said, we're headed to Alabama. We're headed to Colorado, Chicago, and California to go visit some doctors and to see what's what's it like in other areas because honestly I haven't been past New Orleans in my life. Oh, so I'm I excited. New Orleans to too. <laughs> it's a good spot. Yeah. <laughs> and our advocacy um, with special new siblings, we're actually working on our podcast. So we are going to be Amazing. hosting and sharing sibling stories. I love that. Oh yes, we're starting Sibling Speaks Live. So we're going to have podcast stories with siblings and where they're going to be able to share their journey, their experiences in their own words and 
for the community to be able to hear their voice. I love that. Share their yeah. stuff. So I'm excited. And remind everyone where they can find you, where they can find Special Needs Siblings at specialneedsiblings.com. Yep, specialneedsiblings.com. If you want to see me, I'm on Instagram, Janice Dorch, J-E-N-I-E-C-E-D-O-R-T-C-H, Janice Dorch, and Special Needs Siblings. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, but we're not as active. We should do better. <laughs> You have to pick your battles. I mean, I can't do it all. Yeah, exactly. The fact that you're doing that much with six kids, I bow down. Oh, man. Well, Janice, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. And I'm so excited to watch Christian continue to grow and thrive and uh, to watch your work with special needs siblings continue to expand. And I'm just so honored to have had you on the show today. Thank you for your time and your presence. Thank you, Lauren. I really appreciate it. This was really fun. Thank you so much. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.